Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, the editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by the Gateshead-born journalist Sebastian Payne to talk about his new book, Broken Heartlands, on how Labour lost the Red Wall. Born in the North East himself, Payne is Whitehall editor at the Financial Times and presenter of Payne's Politics podcast. Tongue twister there. For his latest book, he bought a red Mini Cooper and visited 10 constituencies in the Midlands and the North, nine of which turned blue in 2019. And for the last issue of Prospect, Payne profiled one of the really instrumental figures, in some ways the embodiment of this great change, Ben Houchen, the enigmatic Conservative Mayor of Tees Valley, whose inexorable rise is turning heads, including that Sebastian of the Prime Minister. So tell us uh, who Ben Houchin is, first of all. So Ben Houchin is the directly elected mayor of the Tees Valley Conurbation, which is in the northeast of England, and it's a post-industrial area. It was once dominated by heavy manufacturing, by mining, uh, and by small-scale manufacturing and port and shipment, all those sort of things. It went into heavy decline in the late 20th century, um, and they got its own mayor in the 21st century, and this was part of George Osborne's idea to try and devolve power and give communities Uh, more say in their future and being allowed them to look for a different vision, one that's not dictated to by Whitehall. And in 2017, Houchin was elected just by a slender majority as the first directly elected mayor of the Tees Valley area, based in Stockton-on-Tees, but also including the towns of Middlesbrough, uh, part of Darlington, um, Redcar. And essentially, he was elected on a platform of a very unconservative thing, which was to nationalise the Tees Valley Airport. And that's really emblematic of what he's trying to do there, because regional airports in the UK are a very contested thing, particularly in the net zero world. Do they have a purpose? Should we be getting rid of them? And Houchin saw this as a symbol of the region of saying this is art. This is a, a, an example of how we've declined and why we need to 
take back control of this and make it better. So he nationalised the airport. He seems to have rejuvenated. At the same time, advocating a whole load of new localised industrial and economic policies. And then come 2019, or I say 2020, after the 2019 election, he was re-elected with 73% of the vote, which is really a whopping mandate. And I think it was the Spectator magazine described him as the most popular politician in Britain, which is maybe over-egging it a bit. But he's a very different kind of conservative and in himself just a fascinating campaigner and political figure. I mean, you tell the story of this rise. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. He's a, he's a kind of ordinary guy. You sense um, he's about your age, pretty young, you know, and he's, he's, he's still in the first half of his 30s. He's from the region. I mean, you know, I'm here in um, uh, West Yorkshire, a bit further south. But, you know, the Conservatives weren't a popular uh, force. And yet he gravitated towards them he eked in didn't he in 2017 and you could say oh, well a bit of Jeremy Corbyn wasn't very popular Brexit was not like fitting well with where Labour was compared to the locals turnout was low but this time this spring it, it, it was an absolute kind of stomp home 73% as you say 73% in an area that within our memory was just sort of seen as Labour forever Exactly. And I think what's interesting about 2017 was everybody expected Labour to win that mayoralty because they controlled all the local councils. I think there was only one Labour MP, absolutely one, there was only one Conservative MP in the Tees Valley area. And now it's kind of the reverse, that the Tories nearly control all the MPs in the Tees Valley. He controls the mayoralty and the councils have been edging bit by bit away from Labour. And I think when you look at 2017, first of all, We'd had the Brexit referendum and you can't get away from the fact that that created a cultural issue for Labour, that the Tees Valley was heavily pro-Brexit and many of the towns such as Redcar and Middlesbrough had some of the highest pro-Leave percentages of the whole country. And Houchin seized on that to simply say Labour's not on your side, they haven't been delivering for you, but here's this new approach, this new fresh way of looking at things. And what's so interesting about him is that he is a conservative. You know, he does believe in generally a smaller state, but jet, but in, he's very pragmatic in the things that he's done. We mentioned the airport. We mentioned the fact that he's got a free port there, which is an idea championed by the Chancellor Rishi Sunak to cut taxes and encourage investment. But again, the free port is being done with government incentives. So it's this very curious mix of public and private sector thrown together, something that Lord Michael Heseltine would like. And in fact, when I've spoken to Lord Heseltine, he's praised Ben Houghton several times, even though the pair of them are on the absolute opposite side of the Brexit debate here. And I think Houghton is very pragmatic, which mirrors Boris Johnson. He doesn't look at things through an ideological lens. And when I spoke to him for the prospect piece, Tom, you know, he said that for him, the difference about public and private sector is accountability mechanisms. What he doesn't care about is if the public sector does something, as long as there's a way that it can be accountable to the taxpayer, because in the past things go wrong in the public sector and they just disappear into a big pot of money. That is what I find so interesting about him. And Boris Johnson, I don't think, has much idea what Johnsonism is himself. His politics are driven by his gut instinct. But when I've spoken to Johnson and people around him, he looks to Houchin as somebody who thinks and acts the same way he does. So, I mean, it's interesting he's getting this sort of quite wide spectrum of support. Boris Johnson, you imagine, and uh, sorry, you quote someone as saying he's obsessed with, uh, with, with, with Ben Houchin. And then there's another thing in your article about 
Will Hutton, you know, very much a Remainy social democratic stalwart uh, observer columnist who sort of sees him as as, as burying the hands off economics of Thatcherism. So, I mean, it does look to be something quite new. Um, and yet you also say he does back Brexit very strongly and you add a little obliquely that he's trying to peel away Labour traditionalists from Labour uh, leaders and Labour's metropolitan base these days on culture war issues like immigration. Now, some prospect readers are going to hear that and think that sounds like he himself is persecuting a, a, a culture war. Um, I mean, how, how active has he been on that front? Well, I think I looked to Benjamin Barber, who wrote a great book a couple of years ago called If Mayors Ruled the World. And he was making the case there that cities are the future. But he also looked at mayors and he studied them across uh, many different countries. And in that, he makes the very compelling argument that mayors have to be post-ideological. Because unlike MPs, they have a very clear direct mandate from voters. They have powers focus on municipalities so you know it's everything from bins to roads to practical things people see in their lives whereas MPs sitting on a national stage are far more abstract and I think Houchin does embody that certainly in terms of economic now on the cultural side of things I think he definitely plays that up in terms of Brexit that at every opportunity he's talking about the benefits of Brexit we're doing all these things because we've left the EU and I'm sure very learned prospect readers would look at some of the things Mr Houchin has said and said hang on a minute, that's got nothing to do with Brexit. We could have done all those things within the EU anyway. But tone, as you know, is always important to these things in politics, as is circumstance. And I think the political atmosphere we're in now, the things the likes of Houchin and Johnson are doing, probably wouldn't have happened had we voted to remain in the EU. And I think another example of that, if you take is the UK's vaccine programme, that obviously we could have opted out of the EMA's vaccine programme had we been in the EU, but I don't think that would have happened because of the political reality at that time. And I think you can map that onto lots of things that Houchin does. Now, obviously, as a mayor, he's not thinking about immigration. He's not thinking about whether Channel 4 should be privatised or nationalised. And he's not talking about Winston Churchill's statue on Parliament Square, all those touch points in the, the so-called culture war that you know Conservatives are trying to use to create a dividing line with Labour. But I think he's very acutely aware that he is on the more the conservative side of things. And that part of the Labour base, the old right, if you want to call it, the former miners, they all find more in common with Houchin than they do with Labour. And one interesting example of this is the Middlesbrough MP, Andy MacDonald. You know, he was a very close ally of Jeremy Corbyn and was a big figure in his shadow cabinet. And him and Houchin butt heads all the time, both locally and nationally, because their style and politics is just so different there. And I have thought it's an interesting thing that in this piece, Houghton talks about going to Westminster and he clearly has ambitions to play on a national political stage. And it will be interesting to see how the mayoralty transfers to that. But I wonder if a part of him would like to try and fight Middlesbrough, because that's a really tough seat for the Tories to win. But if he could beat Labour there, then that would really shore up his election-winning credentials and it would remove one of the last Labour MPs from the Tees Valley. And so just, just to be clear, what are the two of them? You said they're, they're kind of um, butting up against each other, but what, what are they arguing about then? 
They're arguing about, first of all, the practicalities of the government's levelling up agenda, that Houchin is on the forefront of that in terms of the GE factory that's bringing a thousand jobs to bring wind turbines to the Teesport um, infrastructure that obviously the Treasury is moving to the Tees Valley region with um, Treasury. It's called the Treasury North Campus, which has got officials in the Department for Business, Department for Transport, Department of International Trade. And Houchin argues this is all a symbol of the Tories caring about a region and trying to bring economic change. Andy McDonald, on the other hand, would make the case that I'm sure you hear many Labour politicians saying over the next couple of years, which is this stuff isn't substantial. This is not fundamentally changing people's job prospects, their opportunities and giving them a, a, a really different crack at um, a different kind of life. And I think the argument between those two is really interesting. And then on the cultural question there, you know, the fact that Halchin is probably pro-keeping up statues, pro-free speech, the stuff that Labour does try and fight back against. But at the moment, I don't find any Labour MPs really speaking out on that because they're so fearful of losing even more seats in the red wall to the Conservatives. OK, you've, you've used the phrase now, red wall, and of course we've got your, your book and your, your tour of the red wall. Um, and uh, Houchin, as I say, is kind of iconic of, of what then happened uh, across much of the north of England in 2019. Um, let's just start with the definition. You've got some criteria at the beginning. I'm still not quite clear what counts as a red wall seat and what doesn't. I think you said there needs to be some sort of Tory base that never quite disappeared. So it's not Liverpool, for example. But then why isn't, say, Huddersfield part of your red wall or is it? Well, so in the in the front of Broken Heartlands, we've got a table that was um, from Conservative Party HQ and showed the seats that they defined as red wall. I think the key thing to think about it, Tom, is there's some seats that have had Conservative MPs in living memory. So Darlington, for example, in Tees Valley, that's often called red wall, except the fact it had a Conservative MP, I think, from 1983 to 1992. So that is much more of a classic marginal. The key things about the red wall are, first of all, um, um, they've not had a Conservative MP since the war. Some of them go much further back. So North West Durham, for example, and Blythe Valley have never had a Conservative MP since they were formed. So you've got those two criteria. The next thing is you've got a very strong Brexit vote there. And obviously the national vote was 52%. Most of the Red War seats are sort of 55, 16, in some cases higher than that. The point about having the minority Conservative vote means that there's always been a base, a sort of more prosperous side to the industrial gritty part of those seats that have voted Conservative, but it's never really come into contention because that would make it a more marginal seat. Now, Huddersfield is an interesting one because that, in some ways, should be a Red War seat, but the Conservative Party didn't deem it so, and I think that's partly because it sort of still sits in that awkward space between Yorkshire and Manchester there. But Huddersfield is a seat I'm 100% certain the Tories will try and go for at the next election, and I do think that, you know, I've tried to create this definition, but it's not a hard and fast rule here. And many people will dispute what they see as the Red War. But I think if you look at the economic, the demographic and the political characteristics, you can sort of see where they are and the things that they all have in common. Yeah. And is some uh, ethnicity part of it? Because when this gets talked up, a lot of the time people are saying, you know, in Barnsley or whatever, it's very different from in big cities where it's much more racially mixed. 
So Barnsley is a particularly interesting area because a lot of this, Barnsley's had a long time had a strong National Front and BNP contingent in its vote going back into the 70s. Uh, and that vote went very much towards the Brexit party. It did not go towards the Conservatives, as you saw in many of the other Red War seats. Um, Obviously, the vast majority of Red War seats are demographically much higher to be white working class than the rest of the country, the C to D on the demographic scale. Um, but I think, again, you have to look at the mix between demographics and the economic profile as well. So one of the seats I did in the book and on the road trip is Coventry Northwest. Now, that is a really diverse seat. But the rest of its profile is a red war seat. And that's one that didn't fall at the last election. And the reason that I spent time there was to examine this question about whether the Conservatives can ever make more headway with the ethnic minority vote because they still massively under index. I think the Runnymede Trust said that about 64, 65% of the BME vote in the UK still votes Labour. Uh, it went up massively for the Tories in 2015. It then slumped. Um, in 2017 and 19. I think this is something that you can see Boris Johnson wants to have a crack at when you've got the likes of Rishi Sunak, Priti Patel, Kwasi Kwarteng, James Cleverley, all prominent people of colour in the cabinet holding very senior positions. Um, but I think that is going to be a question for the future because if they can get more of those voters over, then there's even more seats where all their other characteristics fit within the red wall as it was in 2019. Because, mm. of course, I mean, um, it's an interesting one, this, isn't it, in terms of whether there are Conservatives like Matthew Paris and George Osborne who worry a lot about banking the party's future on these places which are, you know, you, you're very nuanced in writing about them in that they're not, um, you know, it's not all kind of cares stuff it's like very mixed and there's middle class suburbs and all the rest of it but they are certainly aging and often depopulating uh compared to uh the cities and places further south well the place to look at for that is the west midlands and in when i went to coventry i spent some time with andy street who is the directly elected conservative mayor of the west midlands and again Quite like Ben Houchen, he just slid in in 2017 when uh, Jeremy Corbyn was leader. You had the Brexit reverberations and Andy Street is definitely, in my view, a post-ideological political figure. That He was the former CEO of John Lewis. Uh, he's conservative by temperament and he's sort of pro-business, pro-the private sector. But he's not a passionate culture war figure by any stretch of the imagination. And he said for a long time, the Tories have to win the West Midlands because it's the future of the country. And the West Midlands has both, doesn't it? You know, you've got certainly red war places if you think of like Dudley in the black country but then you've also got more diverse parts of it like Coventry like Birmingham Northfield which the Tories took at the um, um in the 2019 election so I think if you look at Andy Street he's kind of proof that Tories can do both um I know he's quite concerned about you know privately I think some of the the more aggressive cultural rhetoric stuff and there was a bit of a joke during the during the mayoral election campaigns that he was trying to keep Boris Johnson as far away as possible because maybe he was not the most um, uh, popular political figure in the West Midlands. But on demographics and economics, I think he shows that it can be done and you can speak to the Red Wall, those post-industrial left behind places that are becoming more middle class and more housing estates while making headway within the cities like Birmingham and like Coventry. To make much more headway, though, 
it's probably going to be a different political leader to Boris Johnson when we think about maybe the 2029 general election. I'm trying to take a a step back from all of this. I mean, it's it's wonderful reportage in the in the book and um, listening to voters, listening to communities, being optimistic about some of these places that have been, um, you know, locked down for a very long time politically. And so no one gives them the thought. And now they're the swing seats and all of that I can buy. But there's another interpretation, which is that this isn't necessarily a hankering for pragmatism and economic generation it's actually that that people have been ground down into despair by you know 40 years or maybe 60 years of relative decline and so now it's all nostalgia and um nationalism um there's clearly a bit of flag waving that's part of it and so you could say well maybe this is a sort of british gaulism like going to make people proud of being british whilst being very pragmatic in running the economy but could it also be a british Trumpism, um, uh, you know, places like West Virginia, go back 30 or 40 years, that had big um, uh, trade unions in the coal industry, heavily democratic state that stuck with the Democrats even in the Reagan years, I think, and now is sort of 70% for Trump uh, because there's nothing else there and people need something to feel good about. So ultra-nationalism is, is, is what they go for. As I argue in the book, I think we have to go back to the 2016 referendum, Tom, because that was the moment at which these places were forced to confront their Labour identity, which I think had been waning for some time. And people um, to the left of the new Labour project always say, why didn't Tony Blair challenge that economic settlement of the Thatcher era? And I think Mr Blair knew exactly what he was doing. He could see the way these places were changing, the fact their economic bases were becoming more diverse, more small smaller businesses and less focused on heavy manufacturing. And then obviously post-2010, Labour's gone to a very different place on that. At the same time, Labour's gone to a different place on cultural issues. And one of the things that Mr Blair said to me when I spoke to him was, he said, nobody could ever accuse me for not being tough enough on asylum seekers. Like, can you imagine Ed Miliband or Jeremy Corbyn um, or even Keir Starmer uttering words like that? If you think about the New Labour project, it was very tough on those kind of social issues as well. And I think we do forget that. And it also had quite a lot of Euroscepticism edge to it. You know, I dug up a Sunfront page that was written on St George's Day by Tony Blair, but it was probably Alistair Campbell. And it said, you know, on the day that England slayed the great dragon that threatened it, some people say, I don't know who these people were, but some people say it's now take on, it's now time to take on the next threat that faces England, Europe. Like, and if you think of Tony Blair, where he is now, the advocate of the second referendum campaign, that kind of rhetoric just seems implausible. And I think that shows the trajectory the left has been on. To focus on your point about nationalism, though, look, there's no dispute in the 2016 referendum was a kind of make Britain great again moment. There's, and I think that the fact that the Leave campaigners, and you obviously had the sort of the more intellectual wing, shall we say, of the Michael Gove and the Vote Leave and the more caustic nationalist wing of the Leave EU campaign with Nigel Farage, they definitely appealed to that sentiment. And I think that worked because they won over those Labour voters who felt Labour was not on their side because of that drift that I think had gradually happened from the new Labour project 
Was there nostalgia in Brexit? Of course there was. But I don't think it was nostalgia for going down the coal mine. You know, Neil Kinnock, who, again, I spoke to in the book, you know, he said to me, you know, just think about how edifying it is. There's not a single toilet on any coal face in the world. Like, you know, most people now do not go to work and do not have a toilet easily accessible to them. What kind of person wants to go back to that? And I interviewed quite a few former miners turned Labour MPs in the book. What I think there was nostalgia for was structures in their lives, that when people lived in these places, they had what I've called collectivised communities where you lived together, you worked together, you socialised together. There was security, there was stability in everything that you did. And that's been eroded by Thatcherism. Yes, there's been benefits, I think you could argue, in terms of private home ownership, in terms of more private capital. But there's also been insecurity that's come with it. And people can feel both of those things at the same time. And so when Boris Johnson came along in 2019, he spoke to both of them. He said, you know, I, you know, I'm going to keep that prosperity you've got, but I'm also going to fix the problems that have developed as well. And that's what you kind of see in the curious mix of his economic policies. And at the same time, he throws in a good dollop of patriotism as well, um, which, yes, maybe does verge into nationalism at some point as well. But I'd argue that when Labour won elections, it's done that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We had a piece um, a couple of issues ago by Chris Mullin, who uh, was uh, the MP, I think it's Sunderland South, one of the Sunderland That's seats, right. so Red Wall. And uh, he, um, he, I mean, he's very alarmed. He admitted at the beginning of the piece that um, he's given to uh, a pessimistic reading of events. But he certainly knows these kind of communities, having represented them for 20 years. And, you know, he sort of sees this as being on a kind of juggernaut. It'll be hard to get off that he thinks will end up with... Pretty Patel becoming the Conservative leader and calling a referendum on the death penalty. Well, I think the argument about it, first of all, um, Pretty Patel is obviously, she serves a particular purpose in the Conservative Party that I think Norman Tebbit did under Margaret Thatcher. Um, you know, they all, the Conservatives do like to have someone who's tough on law and order. And I think I'd be very surprised if she was elected Conservative Party leader for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, when you look at the death penalty argument, though, I just don't think we're going backwards in terms of social change in this country. You know, that things on a general trajectory, I think, you know, it's it's the arc bending towards social justice thing. If you look at the Red Wall MPs, lots of them are the most prominent LGBT conservatives. So Chris Clarkson, who's the first ever Tory MP for Hayward and Middleton, he is gay. The same for Anthony Higginbotham, the first ever Conservative MP for Burnley. So they mix a social liberalism with a kind of maybe nationalistic economic impulse there. So I don't see the party going backwards because that's what the death penalty would be. It would be reversing the cast kind of 40, 50 years of the trajectory we've been on. Um, there is a question of whether we will keep progressing. And I think the fact that the Conservative Party, you know, was the party that implemented same-sex marriage and the fact, you know, there were rebellions on that and a vocal uh, minority who oppose that within the Conservative Parliamentary Party. But I think there is going to be an interesting question if we look at trans rights, for example, and without going too deeply into that issue, I think where the Conservative Party, does it lead on the vanguard of that or does it go into a different direction? And I think 
based on what you've... Because there was this very interesting moment when uh, the GRA, the Gender Recognition Act, was under review and there was talk of watering down or changing and the ability to self-identify. And I think this was a review led by Liz Truss, the Equalities Minister. And that watering down was actually kiboshed. And I wonder if Boris Johnson, being very perceptive, as he is Andrew Adonis wrote in your magazine quite recently... I just wonder if he's looking 10, 20 years in the future when society is in a very different place. Thinks, hang on a minute. Do I want to be one of the Section 28ers who was against, um, you know, homosexuality in the way that Tories were in the early 90s? So I don't really buy Chris Mullins' argument there that we're going to go backwards. But I think there is an interesting debate on how far and quickly in terms of forwards of social justice this Tory party goes. Uh, with um, one of your MPs, I think the Wakefield chap had been, um, his first campaign was trying to get uh, Elizabeth Peacock elected right. in, 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 in these parts in uh, the early... Now, if memory serves, well, it could have been someone else, but I think it was a, there was a, a spoof call-in, I remember, on a radio where someone rung her up and sort of... Because she was always trying to bring back the death penalty in, in, in Parliament. And um, yeah, this disgruntled person saying, the problem is hanging's too good for them. What we need is open crucifixion and she sort of had this line if it was her I think it was her you know look we've got I hear what you're saying but we've got to go one step at a time <laughs> so she's always in my mind as like the real icon of, <laughs> of the ultras on the law and order stuff but I mean it's very it's you know you've been out and reported in all these places now and, and and had the conversation so you know we want to hear it from you what what do you think it sounds like you think these places are still going to stay marginal for a bit they're not going to move West Virginia style wholesale into the conservative nationalist column forever so they're in play for a bit what do you think the formula is for winning them in the in the next 5 10 20 years well, I think there's definitely two kind of categories of red wall seats first of all there are the more rural more prosperous ones and I would put Sedgefield in that category for example that you've got the uh, former pit villages which are now just dormitories really but you know the biggest employer in Sedgefield is now the Northeast Technology Park where you've got really advanced manufacturing and scientific research being done there uh, and you've got lots of people who live and work in around Durham City in you know who now have gone out to live in the countryside there so those kind of red war seats I think are much tougher for Labour to win back because they've always had a more of a structural conservative vote always been a minority as I said but now you've done that I think it's very hard to get them back the more urban ones I think where there is more poverty and things like the upcoming cuts to universal credit are going to be tougher they're more naturally able for, for Labour to win back um, my general view though is that 2016 was the moment where you cut the umbilical cord that cultural political and economic legacy tying these places to Labour that was gone. And then in 2017, they started to shift big time, although not quite enough to tip those seats over, although the Labour majorities went like that in a lot of the red war seats. And then in 2019, they voted Conservative again. So that's three times they've gone against Labour. And the people like Tony Blair, who I interviewed, have said, you know, we just got to get better leadership. It's just that simple. I don't really buy that because I think that goes against what you've seen at the ballot box. I think really the next election in 2024, as I talked to Boris Johnson about, is going to be, has he delivered on what he promised them? So he said he would get Brexit done and we could spend all day arguing, discussing what that actually means. But for a lot of voters' perceptions, 
I think it kind of is done. Like they feel as if we have left the EU and and that is a palpable change in their lives. Then there's the agenda of everything else, isn't there, in terms of the schools, the hospitals, the skills, the infrastructure. And I think if people can see and feel tangible change within their lives, even if it's not complete, they will think, well, hang on a minute. He's done what he said he was going to do. Very transactional. I think that's the key thing. You know, these people are not. There was a great Dead Ringers episode, which was Billy Elliot imagined through the new Tory Heartland. It's like, oh, son, I'm off down to the club to have some claret and, pe- and pheasant with the lads. You know, that's not how these places now are. The fact is, they're still very transactional how they view it. The argument Labour's got to try and make, I think, is first of all, they haven't done it. And the second is what we would do differently to the Tories. And that's when you get into the whole economic question of Johnson, who is raising taxes, raising public spending. Where does Labour go on that basis? Um, Because I do think Brexit will have faded as an issue. I think for people, I think they will be pleased that Johnson delivered for them. But I don't think you will get too much salience by saying, as I think Johnson intends to, that we're going to be back in the EU before you know it, because I think this, you look at the polling, look at the public dialogue. That's not what people are really discussing here. Um, so I think that's the terrain the next election. Johnson has to say we've delivered and we're going to give you even more. Give us another five years and we'll have really transformed your communities. Keir Starmer, assuming it's him at the next election, has to say he hasn't done that. He didn't deliver what he promised. These are just the same old Tories. And I think the one rule for us, one rule for them thing is quite interesting that the whole Barnard Castle episode where Dominic Cummings breached lockdown rules to drive up north. That did really connect with people. And the Red War Tories I spoke to then felt that was really damaging because it showed this hierarchy of, you know, classic Tories doing the thing they always do. And I think, again, when Boris Johnson was pinged by the coronavirus app over this summer and wasn't going to go into self-isolation, that was, again, a hint at that sense that maybe this is not a new kind of Tories in tone as well as in substance. So those are the things to watch over the next couple of years. So personal integrity, and then it's over to what you call going back to Ben Houch and the the, the strap line, a record of delivery, a a promise of more concrete stuff. Exactly. And I think people have to feel these new toys are on their side. And these people, the thing as well is the toys have got have totally changed candidate selection. I talk a little bit about this in the book, that if you think of Ian Levy, who's the first ever Tory MP for Bly Valley, you know, he was an NHS mental health worker who had not written a letter on his computer in his whole life before he applied to be a Tory candidate. Whereas if you look at Tory candidates in Blythe Valley in the past, they were just standing there to notch up their spurs before going off to a southern seat. The Tories have reconfigured their party to be much more locally focused. And these people look and sound and feel as if they're of these places. So I think that is going to be a challenge for Labour because that was always a kind of, you know, there's a class warfare way they would look at these elections so it is definitely that combination and I think the personal integrity thing people obviously don't tune into the ups and downs of wallpaper and loans from Tory donors and all that kind of stuff but I think if there is that sort of sense that this is a Tory government as usual and people can feel that at the ballot box next time that does risk being damaging. Fantastic. Um, Well, there's loads of those great stories about people suddenly deciding to become uh, MPs and about the remarkable journey of Ben Houch and um, uh, both in um, Sebastian's book, Broken Heartlands, and also in uh, his piece for us on Houchin in Prospect. 
Um, so thanks very much to Seb for joining us and thanks to all of you for listening as well. Our producer is Sarah Collins and if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. Goodbye, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.